Okay, so Esther chapter 2 and verse 1. After these things, when the anger of King Ahasuerus had abated, he remembered Vashti and what she had done and what had been decreed against her. Then the king's young men who attended him said, Let beautiful young virgins be sought out for the king, and let the king appoint officers in all the provinces of his kingdom to gather all the beautiful young virgins to the harem in Susa, the citadel, under custody of Hegai, the king's eunuch who is in charge of the women. Let their cosmetics be given them, and let the young woman who pleases the king be queen instead of Vashti. This pleased the king, and he did so. Now there was a Jew in Susa, the citadel, whose name was Mordecai, the son of Jair, son of Shimei, son of Kish, a Benjamite, who had been carried away from Jerusalem among the captives carried away when Jeconiah, king of Judah, whom Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon, had carried away. He was bringing up Hadassah, that is, Esther, the daughter of his uncle, for she had neither father nor mother. The young woman had a beautiful figure and was lovely to look at, and when her father and her mother died, Mordecai took her as his own daughter. So when the king's order and his edict were proclaimed, and when many young women were gathered in Susa, the citadel, in custody of Hegei, Esther also was taken into the king's palace and put in custody of Hegei, who had charge of the women. And the young woman pleased him and won his favour, and he quickly provided her with her cosmetics and her portion of food, and with seven chosen young women from the king's palace, and advanced her and her young women to the best place in the harem. Esther had not made known her people or kindred, for Mordecai had commanded her not to make it known. And every day Mordecai walked in front of the court of the harem to learn how Esther was and what was happening to her. Now when the turn came for each young woman to go into King Ahasuerus, after being twelve months under the regulations for the women, since this was the regular period of their beautifying, six months with oil of myrrh and six months with spices and ointments for women, when the young woman went into the king in this way, she was given whatever she desired to take with her from the harem to the king's palace. In the evening she would go in and in the morning she would return to the second harem in custody of Shashgaz, the king's eunuch, who was in charge of the concubines. She would not go in to the king again unless the king delighted in her and she was summoned by name. When the turn came for Esther, the daughter of Abihel, the uncle of Mordecai, who had taken her as his own daughter to go in to the king, she asked for nothing except what Hegei, the king's eunuch, who had charge of the women, had advised. Now Esther was winning favour in the eyes of all who saw her, and when Esther was taken to King Ahasuerus into his royal palace in the tenth month, which is the month of Tebeth, in the seventh year of his reign, the king loved Esther more than all the women, and she won grace and favour in his sight more than all the virgins, so that he set the royal crown on her head and made her queen instead of Vashti. Then the king gave a great feast for all his officials and servants. It was Esther's feast. He also granted a remission of taxes to the provinces and gave gifts with royal generosity. Now when the virgins were gathered together the second time, Mordecai was sitting at the king's gate. Esther had not made known her kindred or her people, as Mordecai had commanded her, for Esther obeyed Mordecai just as when she was brought up by him. In those days, as Mordecai was sitting at the king's gate, 
Bigthan and Teresh, two of the king's eunuchs who guarded the threshold, became angry and sought to lay hands on King Ahasuerus. And this came to the knowledge of Mordecai, and he told it to Queen Esther. And Esther told the king in the name of Mordecai, when the affair was investigated and found to be so, the men were both hanged on the gallows, and it was recorded in the book of the Chronicles in the presence of the king. We trust God will bless the reading of his word this evening. So we looked last week, uh, we uh, were introduced to this uh, book of Esther, uh, this, this great story. It was, uh, has every ingredient that makes a, a good story, really. It's got the, the, the drama, it's got the, the love story, it's got uh, a baddie who you can really uh, not like, and it's got the happy ending at the end. And it really is quite an engrossing uh, book once you start reading it. And tonight in our chapter, we come to events that happen four years after what uh, we looked at in chapter one last week. So at the start of uh, chapter one, in verse one, chapter three, it says, in the third year of the reign of Ahasuerus. And now uh, in this chapter, we find out that we come to the seventh year of the reign of Ahasuerus. So four years have passed since the events that took place where Vashti was uh, dethroned from being queen and sent away from Ahasuerus. Uh, it's not clear, it doesn't say whether she was uh, killed or not or if she was just uh, taken out of the palace lifestyle, but she is gone and there is a four year period and now we come to the start of chapter two. And where it says after these things, then it's talking about after this period of four years. Now, we know from history that around this sort of time when Ahasuerus was king was when the uh, Greek empire started to uh, rise up and started to make inroads in the world. Uh, the Persians, who Ahasuerus was in charge of at the moment, they were the major world power, as we thought last week. But there start to be a few rumblings from the Greeks. And during this four-year period, history tells us that there were a few skirmishes between uh, Greece and the Persians. And uh, maybe, we don't know, but maybe that's what after these things is referring to here, that Ahasuerus has come back maybe from one of these skirmishes and realises that he's got nothing to come back to because he's got rid of his queen and uh, he feels a bit alone. He's just surrounded by his eunuchs and he wants a bit of companionship. And so he talks to his young men who are around him and they come up with this idea to have a, I don't really know what to call it, a kind of beauty contest really, I guess it is, that if you're a king, I guess in those days that's what you could do. You could line up all the women and take your pick and that's what King Ahasuerus seems to do here in this chapter. And he likes the sound of this idea and tells them to go ahead with it. And so then that brings us about to being introduced to uh, our, our main characters for the book of Esther, and that's Esther and Mordecai. And we are introduced to them, and first of all we're introduced to Mordecai in verse 5. He was a Jew, and his ancestors, his uh, great-great-great-grandfather, I think it is, Kish, uh, so not to be uh, confused with the Kish, who was the father of Saul the king. This is a different Kish, who was a Benjamite. 
and he had been alive when the Jews were exiled from Jerusalem and brought through to Babylon, which would probably have taken, about, taken place about 110 to 120 years before the events that are happening here in our chapter this evening. So Mordecai and Esther have been brought up completely in this Persian lifestyle. They've lived all their lives here and they are accustomed to the ways, the Persian ways, and they've been living there quite a while. Now, an overriding theme of Esther, as we thought last week, is the the divine uh, intervention or the, the divine purposes of God and his providence carried out throughout the book of Esther. You can, although God's name's not mentioned, you can see his overriding power and guiding in everything that takes place. There are uh, a lot of uh, coincidences, as the world would call them, that we know are not coincidences because they were all planned by God, where people are in the right place at the right time for everything in the story to take place. And we get that especially in uh, this chapter this evening. And I just want to read another few verses to you. They're in Jeremiah chapter 29. Uh, You don't need to turn to them, but you can if you like. Jeremiah chapter 29. And uh, here Jeremiah is preparing the people for when the exile that's about to take place. And he gives them some instructions, which I think if we read now, when you think about these as we go through this chapter, it helps give an idea as to maybe why Mordecai and Esther made some of the decisions that they made. And Jeremiah 29 verse 4 says, Thus says the Lord of hosts, the God of Israel, to all the exiles whom I have sent into exile from Jerusalem to Babylon. Build houses and live in them. Plant gardens and eat their produce. Take wives and have sons and daughters. Take wives for your sons and give your daughters in marriage, that they may bear sons and daughters. Multiply there and do not decrease, but seek the welfare of a city where I have sent you into exile and pray to the Lord on its behalf, for in its welfare you will find your welfare. So with that in mind, there Jeremiah is basically telling the Jews that this is going to happen, it's unavoidable. You're going to be exiled to Babylon. You are going to have to embrace the place where you're going to. You're still to stay true to God and to stay true to your beliefs, but you are to embrace the culture while you're there, you are to do the best you can, live the best you can and try to prosper the land that you are in because that will in turn prosper you. And so with that we're introduced to Mordecai and Esther that are living in this Persian culture and trying to uh, carry on uh, there in exile. Now we're told that Mordecai is the cousin of Esther so his uncle's daughter and Esther's lost both her parents and Mordecai takes her under his wing as his daughter. So uh, we can pretty safely say from this that Mordecai is quite a bit older than Esther, even though they were cousins. And he treats her like a daughter and he looks after her and he guides her and cares for her. And then uh, we're told in verse Seven, that Esther was a young woman, had a beautiful figure and was lovely to look at. And the reason we're told that is because of this uh, ritual or this thing that's about to take place where King Ahasuerus is rounding up 
all the uh, nice young ladies from the uh, place where he is ruling to be taken to the palace. And that is why Esther is taken. And because Mordecai has told her not to reveal her nationality, her heritage, then she is taken off uh, as if she was a, another young Persian woman off to be in the king, kept in the king's uh, palace for now, to be prepared for this uh, test or this ceremony to see if she is worthy to be the king's wife. Now, we can read Esther and some of the things that take place can bring about some, some concerns or some questions in our minds. Certainly did for me when I was reading this and uh, they can maybe be troubling. But I think overall in this chapter we see that, that God's plan will be carried out no matter what situation we're in. We might question why because... We know, we thought last week with Paul, that this takes place after some of the Jews had gone back to Jerusalem to try and rebuild the city and to uh, return to the land. And you might say, well, why has Mordecai not gone with them? And why did Esther not go with them? We're not told and we don't know. They might not have been able to. We're not entirely sure of the age of Mordecai. He might not have been able to be of any help. But it's a question that might arise in our minds. And we might also ask why Mordecai allowed Esther to go and to be taken off to the king's palace to be part of something that would have uh, been uh, an aberration to the Jews and their laws and the way that marriages should have taken place. But again, we're not told. We're told that Esther is taken into custody. It makes it sound like it's uh, not much choice of her own, whether she went or not. And uh, all we can do is maybe just uh, take in those words of Jeremiah 29, uh, 4 to 7, and think that they've uh, embraced the culture, they're living in the land, and they're just trying to be the best citizens that they can. So when the king calls, Esther and Mordecai answer to what the king says. Not too dissimilar to what we're experiencing at the moment, where maybe we're not quite allowed to do things we like to do as a Christian, but the law of the land has told us it is that way and we have to fall in line sometimes. So Esther finds herself in the palace with uh, Hegei, the man who has the hardest job in Persia. Here he is having to look after all these women. Quite how he managed day to day, we'll never know. But here he is, Hegei, the most unenviable job. And he has to look after all these potential wives for a Hazurus. Now... Another thing for which we can be grateful for that doesn't happen today is that Esther had to go through a 12-month period to get ready. I mean, some mornings with four girls in my house, it's a struggle to get out in the morning. But to wait 12 months for each of them to be ready would be a bit excessive. But that's how long they had to go through this purifying process and to make sure that they were ready to be presented to the king. And Esther, while she's in this period, she... Uh, again, carries on this spirit of Jeremiah 29 where she does everything she can to prosper herself and the welfare of the land. She listens to the advice of Hegei, the man in charge. She makes sure that she is uh, not causing any trouble. She just gets on with it, does what she needs to do to be uh, recognised as being a good and orderly and well-trusted member of the harem there in the palace. And that's not too dissimilar to what we should be like today, isn't it? We 
we should be seen as, as Christians, as those who are good, hard-working, honourable, honest, and people who don't cause trouble, who look to uh, prosper the land around us by just following God's will and doing what God has asked us to do. And that's what Esther and Mordecai do here. And Mordecai his, uh, takes on his, his father role that he's assumed. Uh, he continues to make sure that he's there at the gate each, uh, in regular occasions to find out what's going on and to check that Esther is okay. And we find at the end of this chapter that turns out to be quite a handy habit for him to have taken as he happens to be in the right place at the right time to hear what he needs to hear. So the story carries on and Esther, uh, who uh, grows in prominence, I feel, as the the story goes on, uh, here maybe we might wonder why Mordecai asked her to hide her her true identity, her true nationality. Um, We know that for us as Christians, that's not what we're called to do. We're called to be witnesses to make sure we make known Christ. Um, and to make sure that we tell others about Christ. But for whatever reason, Mordecai and Esther choose to keep that secret for now. Uh, there may have been some, uh, some hate towards the Jews. There clearly is, as we see from a certain man later on in the story. And maybe they were wise in keeping things quiet because of, they knew the pressures that were around the city. We, we don't know. But they keep it quiet and Esther rises up to the point where she becomes queen and she is recognised as uh, being Ahasuerus' favourite. She's found favour in his eyes by the the good work that she's done, by listening to Haggai and taking on each role that she's uh, given. Uh, Not too dissimilar maybe we might think to some of the the, uh, other characters in the Old Testament that we see. We can think of Joseph when he was in the prison and how he just got on with stuff and did what he was asked to do and found favour in the sight of those around him, even though he was in a foreign land. And that's similar, really, to what happens to Esther and Mordecai here. Now, after Esther is made queen and she comes into uh, Ahasuerus and is picked, then we come to this last uh, little section at the end of chapter 2, from verse 19, uh, we find that Mordecai was sitting at the gate and uh, we know that he's been regularly going there to find out about how Esther's getting on and now he is here. And it's no coincidence, is it, that Mordecai happens to be at this place at the time that these men are talking about uh, a plot to dethrone and to get rid of the king. And Mordecai overhears these two men Uh, arguing and getting heated and angry at the king and taking on that spirit of Jeremiah 29 again, being a good uh, citizen of the land, uh, looking after the welfare of the land, Mordecai makes sure that what he has heard is passed on to Esther. He obviously has ways of communicating with Esther, be it directly or by getting to know the people that were around her. He's able to get this message through to her and she is able to alert the king and when they investigate it, they find that everything that Mordecai said was true and that these men were plotting against him, that they were not being honourable and they were hung on the gallows. And it was recorded in the book of the Chronicles in the presence of the king. Now that might seem 
a bit of a throwaway comment at the end of chapter 2, but we'll see later on in later weeks how that is important that it was recorded down in the book because we have another uh, moment where uh, Ahasuerus re-reads this and it brings Mordecai back into the limelight again. And so it really teaches us here that our, our actions can have an effect. Mordecai, he could have just ignored what he'd heard and thought, it's not worth the hassle, why, why make myself known and report this? It'll just be uh, a bit of hassle and these men might get angry at me and it could turn against me. He didn't think like that. He thought, what's the right thing to do here? It's to tell the king that somebody is plotting against him and his good deeds later on in the, ch- in the book uh, will come back and he will be rewarded for them. And that might happen with us. We might do something and we might not see the benefit of it straight away. But in years to come, in days to come, even maybe after our lifetime, there may be a, a benefit from what we've done by doing the right thing, by acting as God would have us to act in a certain situation. And so the overall uh, uh, feeling I get from this chapter really is that although maybe what Esther and Mordecai are, the situation they find themselves in at the start, it might not uh, feel like they were in the right, might not feel like they did the right things maybe by staying in Persia, by, by getting in the situations they did, but God will use us no matter what. If we're maybe finding ourselves in, in places we shouldn't be or maybe we've ended up in a situation where we, we shouldn't have got to or maybe things aren't going right for us and we feel like we're not really being much used to God, God can always use us. God can always bring about his will. He has a plan for each of us and that plan will come out. And the, the closer we are to God, the more we uh, are in God's word and listening to him, then the more likely we are to be able to carry out God's plan for him. And we see from Mordecai that uh, later on in the book, that although uh, we might question why, why he was still there, that he hadn't gone back, that he was obviously a man who, who knew uh, God's word. He, he knew the Old Testament because he knew that he was not to bow down to Haman later on in the book. He, he knew that there was only one God and that he should not bow down to another. And so uh, we can see that God's plan will be carried out no matter what. And that's an encouragement to us, especially in the times that we live in at the moment. We, like Esther and Mordecai, we live in a land that uh, on the whole feels the opposite and lives the opposite to how we would live and believes the opposite to what we believe, but God can still use us and God's plan will still be carried out uh, no matter what uh, the rest of the world thinks. And so we should uh, stay close uh, to him and to his word in order to make sure that we can be the best vessels, the cleanest vessels of use to God.